Hello, and welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Kyle Wing from EPAM Continuum. For me, college was an exceptional experience. It provided unfettered time to try things out, figure out what I loved, what I thought I loved, but didn't make me happy. I could make mistakes and I could screw up. And there was so much free food, like so much free food. Yes, I, I went to class most of the time, but college was about so much more than what I learned in the classroom. It was about learning how to learn. It shaped how I look at the world and how I go about trying to impact the future. It's certainly not for everyone, and what I gained there could have definitely been gained in other ways. But for those fortunate enough to have a college experience, it is a decisively impactful period of time, largely because of the physical and intellectual environment that the college campus provides. This spring, as a pandemic booted students and professors off campus and into Zoom breakout rooms, the nation started to question the centuries-old institution and what its real value is, especially when it gets minimized to staring at a computer screen for hours a day. Many people saw this coming. New school years come like death and taxes, and it certainly wasn't going to stop because of a pandemic, but it was going to have to be different. We published our own take on this situation this summer in a white paper called Beyond the Degree. But summer is over, and the school year is well underway, so what is happening on college campuses this fall? Well, with a distinct lack of national leadership, months of conflicting and ever-changing information, a continuing shortage of testing capacity, and wide-ranging state and local precautions, colleges have largely been left to their own devices. Some schools that invited their students back to campus have already sent them packing, unable to control outbreaks. Others, after months of considered and careful planning, met the challenge and are showing the nation what things might have looked like if we had responded differently. Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine is one of those schools. So today, our very own producer and new Bowdoin parent, Ken Gordon, dusts off his microphone to interview Bowdoin's president, Clayton Rose. Rose walks us through their very own COVID dashboard, how they've made adjustments to their policies on the fly, and how they're trying to combat inequities within their student population. Welcome. Welcome, Clayton. We're so glad to have you on the residence test today. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It's, uh, it's great to be here, Ken. Thanks for inviting me. You bet. Now, first off, we have to start off with something really important, which is that the Bowdoin status level has just moved from orange to yellow. And I want to say congratulations on that. And then I would like you to explain to our listeners what that means exactly and uh, sort of what we did to get there. Yeah. So uh, the congratulations really belong to our students and the faculty and staff here. But um, uh, the we have three levels of status, I guess, related to COVID-19, red, orange, and yellow. In, the, in a COVID-19 environment where the virus is still present and a danger, we don't have a green. That seems a bit ambitious. <laughs> um, we started when students arrived uh, just before classes began in yellow, uh, sorry, in orange. Uh, and that meant that uh, there were restrictions on, uh, specific restrictions on how many can gather together outside, uh, um, no real gathering together inside, uh, uh, more specific restrictions around masking and um, what, how that had to be, facial mask, how that had to be done uh, outside. Uh, we were testing every student uh, every other day um, and this was really uh, a status to uh, allow us to bring all the students onto campus to get them tested regularly for two weeks, 
to hopefully ensure, which is it, it, it has turned out that way, that we don't have uh, the presence of the virus so far on campus. We had three students test positive, but they all came with it and we isolated them and they're through and done and safe and healthy and no one else got it. So that was great. After two weeks uh, of both uh, clean tests and, uh, you know, uh, essentially really great compliance by our students uh, with the uh, rules of the road around social gathering, social distancing, facial masking, and so forth, we were ready to move to yellow, which uh, allows the students to gather in greater numbers, to gather inside while being masked, um, to begin to use uh, the library, the academic buildings, uh, uh, some of the other buildings on campus, and just uh, today uh, to begin to use the athletic facilities. Uh, they have to sign up for it. We've got you know specific rules around how that's done, a number of people and so forth. But they can start working out and, and uh, uh, engaging in those activities as well. So, and everyone, uh, they were thrilled to be here, uh, as you know, uh, when they arrived. And they're uh, really in a good, good place right now, having had the opportunity over the last week or so to, uh, to take it to another level. Are you at all concerned that there might be some sort of sense of complacency now that you've moved to a level of safety and, and people might sort of relax in terms of their compliance or behavior? That's a great question. Yes, is the short answer. I think uh, <laughs> I think it's related to students. I think it's related to all of us and the whole country, but a combination of both compliance and weariness. Um, so uh, I, I am not too worried about it right now, but I think in another three or four weeks, and you know, we could have an issue, but in another three or four weeks, as the weather turns colder here, we really become much more uh, inside than outside. Uh, and we've had, you know, six, seven weeks of testing uh, where all of us are feeling healthy, having gotten the results back from these tests. Uh, I think, you know, the, the natural tendency will be to let our guard down and we're going to have to make sure that we don't let that happen. Um, we've got communication plans and kind of marketing plans and humorous ways to remind students to, uh, to do the right thing. I think their heart's in the right place, but we're all human and it's going to be a challenge as we get into the colder weather. Yeah, we should remind everybody that Bowdoin is in Maine, which can get very, very cold uh, in the winter. Now, one thing I want to mention is the Bowdoin's uh, COVID-19 dashboard, which is really, it's my favorite piece of data visualization I've seen in a very long time, because uh, it's clear and it's concise, and it, it really presents what uh, we need to see in a way that makes perfect sense. As a parent, I found the dashboard offers me a, like a legitimate peace of mind, and it's an extremely effective means of providing a, a sense of your sort of community health. Um, what can you tell me about how people have responded to it? That's my personal response as a parent. But have there, have you received other responses from the community or even sort of the larger higher ed community taking a look at that? What's been the feedback like on that? Uh, so we've I've gotten a little bit of feedback myself. Others have as well. Um, uh, very much along the the lines that you described, uh, Ken. I think people have found it to be helpful peace of mind, uh, being able to, we update it every day uh, with new data on our testing and how our testing has gone. And it's both day-to-day -day as well as cumulative over uh, the period since students have been here. Um, uh, and it provides also text, which explain both definitionally and also with certain kinds of results that come back and so forth. So um, I think so far it's working. Interestingly, um, 
you know, this is an example of how we learn uh, in, in a crisis situation. So at least in, in the way that I think about managing uh, in a crisis is the recognition that, that there are going to be things that we're going to try that aren't going to work exactly right or sometimes not going to work at all. And you have to be open-minded to, to adjusting or changing or just you know, putting aside some of the things that you tried. The original dashboard was fine, but we got feedback um, that it didn't provide enough of this or the information wasn't organized in exactly the right way. We were shameless about looking at other uh, schools and, and trying to take the best of what they had. And so between the feedback and, and, the, uh, uh, and what we saw you know, do, being done well at, at peer schools, we constructed the kind of version 2.0, and that's what you see today. And we may get to a 3.0, but, um, but in these moments, you really do have to be willing to, to, uh, to, to change on the fly. And, and somebody said recently to, to, you know, we're building the airplane as we're flying at all colleges and universities are, and we have to recognize that. Yeah, no, I, I love the uh, iterative approach you're taking. Um, have there been any other things that have not gone the way you thought they would that you've had to sort of shift um, in regards to? You know, I would say the answer to that is for sure yes, in in lots of small ways. I don't not they're much less visible and and frankly, um, you know, uh, you know, really kind of in the weeds. But in in the in the way we think about student life and the way students are interacting with each other, the opportunities we're giving them, we'll try this, we'll try that. Um, the what we're asking of you know faculty and staff and and the ways that they uh, engage with campus and their jobs and so forth. Over the last, you know, one month, three months, six months, we've made uh, a bunch of changes as we moved along here. Um, uh, so yeah, it's uh, nothing big and nothing that's been uh, nothing big yet, but um, but that may happen too, and we have to be open to that. So. Yeah, that sounds like the right attitude. Um, one of the things that I've really appreciated is sort of the uh, the messaging that I've got from your website, how clear and sort of regular the communications are. And if you read it in order, it's it's a it's a kind of real saga, um, particularly parts when you had when you wrote um, to the international students when we had all that drama involved there. Can you talk in general about your communication strategy and how? it's changed if it has changed um, during the pandemic era? Was it always like this? Because I've only known you since the pandemic really started. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, uh, I, I don't think uh, the, the strategy or approach that I take and we take to communications uh, has changed during the pandemic. I, I certainly think, and it's very much a, a reflection, I think, of how I try to approach uh uh, the responsibility I have in communicating with our community. That's a, that's a, a, a the, among the very, um, the, the, among the limited number of most important things that I have in my, uh, on my list. Um, but I've learned over time, I've been, you know, in, in other uh, parts of my career, been involved in crises from time to time. And then that's just the challenge of leadership and management. And I think you develop, a view and, and a set of skills about how to do this. Uh, one can argue, you know, and, and some will about how well I carry it out, but it very much is a reflection of how I think about it. it the, for me, there are several ground rules. The first is uh, clarity and trying to be just simple and declarative and, uh, and, and use language that everyone can get their head around. The second is to be as transparent as possible about why we're doing what we're doing uh, and what we don't know. 
and what the implications are of what we don't know. Um, I think that that issue is the, maybe the hardest for, uh, for all of us. There is a desire to provide uh, answers to all questions. Um, in some ways, you think if you're in a role like I'm in, you're supposed to have all the answers, which, of course, is ridiculous. Um, and there's a human desire to help uh, uh, those who are um, relying on you and relying on the institution and are in a period of great uncertainty and stress and deep concern to try to alleviate some of that. And uh, what I found is that there is there's a trade-off between saying things in the immediate term that may make some folks feel good at that moment and building a track record where folks know that when they hear something from you, you're getting exactly the straight story and as much transparency about what we do know and we don't know as is humanly possible. And I, you know, I, I want to be clear. I, I, I never uh, score a hundred on that, right? This is always a learned experience and I, I always sure. do it. but it's very much about those, those ground rules. And I appreciate that. One of the things I'd like to, as a, as a parent is the, um, this sort of mini town halls, the school set up before things got going and I was just wondering, as someone who's been sort of working nonstop at home since March, I'm getting a little burnt out of digital meetings. And if I have to go on another, I mean, I will have to go to another team's meeting any minute now. But how do you guys deal with that sense of burnout? So much of what's happening on campus is um, online instructions. What, what steps are you taking to make sure that everyone does not get burnt out? Yeah, well, we're, we're uh, very imperfect at that. And I, I would say we're still struggling with how to how best to help folks do that, uh, you know. In some ways, I think we look at our students and their you know how old they are and think, okay, they're digital natives, they get this, they're used to dealing with it. That's not true, you know. A, a full plate all day of online experiences is challenging for our students as it is for you know somebody who's got a, a limited amount of hair and it's all gray and all that. Um, <laughs> the the but I do think they have. Uh, they have one another. They have classmates. They are digital natives. It's it's uh, uh, it's the challenge. I think is at a lower uh, lower degree for our students. For our faculty, that's frankly where I think the rubber meets the road. They are uh, delivering uh, really, I think, exceptional Bowdoin courses to our students. Courses that for the longest time they have taught in person. And now I've had to reconfigure how they how they deliver that content, that intellectual engagement in an online mode. That is not the same as just taking your syllabus and and then flipping on you know Zoom or whatever and right. and and you're good to go. It requires a whole different way of thinking and of conducting yourself and organizing your classes. Most of our faculty have taken what would be their normal amount of time that they would spend in class. And they've added more time to that to be able to engage with students in different ways. Um, uh, the time that for preparation is uh, significantly enhanced or, or, or greater. Uh, so it's been a challenge of all of the Zoom time that, uh, that uh, folks have to go through. You know, I think the, the thing that, that, that motivates everyone here, our students, faculty, staff, is the desire to uh, have a great educational experience and to make it make it great for students and to make it satisfying for faculty, and that joint project is keeping uh, everyone kind of sane uh, through a very difficult process here. Let's talk about those students. You brought 
first-year students exclusively on campus this semester. What was what was the intent behind that? Mm. Um, so we can uh, it, it, the first first part of the answer to that relates to how we've thought about the um, the the responsibility that we have and the mission that we have. And it has two parts. The first is uh, and foremost is protecting the health and safety of the students, the faculty, the staff, and frankly, uh, as well, also the folks in town here, our neighbors. And, um, uh, and that's in a world where the virus is real, it's highly contagious. The uh, effects can be very serious for any age, particularly if you have comorbidities and so forth. And so we're very mindful of that. And the second piece was making sure we could deliver a great educational experience to every student, no matter where they were. The first piece on health and safety, there were three legs to, um, um, to how we were going to uh, maximize the, um, the, the chances of, of remaining health, healthy and safe. The first is... Uh, reducing the density on campus. Colleges and universities are, by their nature, extremely dense environments. We're all packed in here, in the dormitories, in the classrooms, in all the spaces. And for the vast majority of the time, that has all kinds of good written all over it. It enhances the experience. It's what folks come to college for. It's why we all work here. We love that social interaction. But in a pandemic, it's got some real issues. And so uh, we reduce the density on campus to accomplish two things. The first is to limit, to some extent, the transmission of the virus. And the second is, should the virus get in, it gives us uh, the, the capacity and the slack to be able to manage an outbreak and still try to keep everyone safe without having to send everyone home again. Well, you know, it's possible that that happens, but we give ourselves the best chance of being able to do that. Uh, to do that, we decided that we'd have about 35 to 40% of our students back, anchored by our first-year class, and we also have our, uh, a group of students for whom uh, trying to learn at home is impossible because of the nature of the home situation and internet connections, the inability to get a quiet study space and things like that. And then we also have some seniors who are doing honors projects. They've been working on them for a long time. They need lab space or performance space to be able to complete them. Uh, we decided to have the first years back um, and not the seniors or something else because the first semester of the first year of college is so important to understanding college, to understanding Bowdoin, uh, to getting to know your, uh, your peers, uh, to being able to figure out the place from a physical perspective. It is the anchor that will allow a great college experience to take place for the remaining three and a half years. And uh, uh, against all of the other benefits to other classes, this one for us uh, outweighed, um, outweighed all of the others. And that's why we anchored it with our first years. Well, my, I have to ask, what do the non-first year students think about that? <laughs> uh, look, you can understand it. Our students love being at Bowdoin. They, 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 were, they had to pivot and leave campus within a matter of days in March and uh, at the front end of a pandemic. Uh, they went through great uncertainty through the spring and, and then into the summer. And they all wanted to come back. Uh, we wanted them back. Um, so there were uh, a bunch of folks who were not happy when we made the announcement in June that we were going to configure the, um, the, the, the fall semester, the, as I described it. Um, but uh, over the course of the summer and, and as we began a school, I think folks have gotten comfortable with what we're doing, understand what we're doing. Our plan, if we can pull it off, we haven't announced what we're going to do yet for the spring, but our aspiration is to have the other three classes back in the spring semester. Uh, having learned what we're going to learn from this. And, and I'm, I'm hopeful that that will happen. 
Um, and then everybody will have a, a kind of equivalent experience over the course of the full year. What do you think the chances are of everybody coming back in the spring? If you had to get, if you had to give me some odds, what would be the odds? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not, I don't do odds right now on that. We're working it as hard as we can right now. We're spending a lot of time thinking about that. Um, but I, uh, I, I don't want to be in the bookmaking business. <laughs> You're in the book studying business, right? Yeah, there you go. All right, well done. All right. Let's talk. Let's talk about iPads. Um, you know, Bowdoin's provided iPads to the student to all students this fall, and it seems like a a really great option, particularly because um, the school will cover the sort of internet service costs and will allow the students to buy the de- devices for for a buck at graduation, right? Yep. How is that actually playing out in reality? How are things going this semester? Have you have you run into any surprises or anything you've had to deal with in terms of these um, devices? Um, the short answer to that is no. It's been uh, we had high expectations for the program, and it certainly met them, if not exceeded them. The as you said, Ken, we we made the decision in the, in the summer to provide every student uh, at Bowdoin, whether they're remote on campus, whatever, anyone enrolled uh, with an iPad Pro um, and any faculty that wanted one. And uh, really the genesis of this came from a group of faculty who were working with these and and they have, the iPad Pro has amazing functionality and tools uh, for teaching and learning and an ability to collaborate in a a virtual world between a, a, a faculty member in the class or a study group of students it's really powerful and um, as, a, as a teaching and learning tool. Uh, the faculty were coming and said, we really like to get our hands on these. These are things we can do and so forth. And as we looked at that, we said, okay, that's one issue. The other issue we were wrestling with is equity across all of our students for access to technology that would allow them to have, to the best extent possible, an equal experience in the online world. And, um, uh, you know, for, for students who are fortunate enough to come from well-off families, they can afford an, an iPad uh, Pro. For other students who uh, uh, are from uh, families that are, uh, have significant financial aid, that's not an expense that they can afford. And, and it just felt not fair to us to put our students in that disadvantage. And we wanted everyone to have a platform that was the same so that our faculty didn't have to worry about who had access to this kind of platform, who was working with software in this mode and that mode and so forth. And so it it was, and I'll step back and talk about online in a second, but it, it's really worked well, um, I think, for the faculty and for the students. And we're, we've scratched the surface maybe a little deeper than that on the power of how we're going to use these things, both in the pandemic mode and after the pandemic mode uh, is, is beyond us here. Um, if I can just add, I, I we made the decision in addition to lowering the density to go fully online with the exception of a, of one course for first year students called our first year writing seminar. And that includes the, the other classes our first years will have on campus. Everybody's online. And we did that intentionally to have all of our faculty, all of our staff and all of our students focused on a single mode of delivery. And one would, that would allow for continuity of the education if we had to pivot or if there were issues with the, with the viruses uh, in invading our campus. Um, and uh, so, the, again, no one voted for this because it's not what we normally do and it's not what we love to do. We love to be in the classroom. But that decision was actually incredibly powerful. And uh, the whole campus community has been focused since uh, the middle of June 
on delivering a great online education. And that has paid off well. The use of the iPads is one angle on that, but there are a whole bunch of other angles on that as well. Cool. I'd like to know a little bit about the space and how you're using space differently um, this fall. I know all the students have singles, and I was wondering about how you've used the the rest of the environment, how you've redesigned the physical space to um, provide both you know, social distance and uh, educational excellence. Yeah. Um, so for those who are on campus, uh, as you said, the, the having lowered the density, one of the things that we've accomplished is having every student have their own room. Um, that's a that's a really important thing for uh, for the management of the virus. And my daughter uh, loves it, so thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, there are other ancillary benefits. That's right. Um, uh, and so the and and we have a, a fair amount of excess capacity in the dorms simply by the by virtue of having you know thirty five to forty percent of our students back. Um, for the first year writing seminars, which are classes that are capped at sixteen students, sometimes have five or six, depends on the the the, the topic and the faculty member. Um, we've set up eighteen tents, large tents around campus, with tables and chairs and internet uh, hotspots uh, and um, uh, audio connections if uh, folks want to get mic'd up and so forth. And uh, so far, the weather's been great. Uh, we've been really lucky. We haven't had any rain uh, and, and beautiful fall so far. Uh, and so students have been taking those classes outside. Uh, we do have classrooms. I'll come back to the classrooms in a, in a second. Um, uh we're, we, the library is, is now open. Study spaces around campus are open. Uh, we have limits on the number of folks that can be in a particular space at a particular time. You have to have certain protocols around masking and so forth, but all pretty easy. And students are, you know, I walk the libraries. I'm in the library building, my office. I walk by the big window uh, every night when I walk home and, and uh, I see students in there every night and they're waving to me and I'm waving to them and they're studying and they're just wearing a mask. It's just that's the only difference I see from all the other years I've walked by. One of the things that we did in the summer is to do a, um, uh, an engineering study of all the inside spaces that we have, our classrooms and the major gathering spaces, uh, to look at the intersection of uh, six feet of separation, the amount of outside air that comes in, the, the flow of air, and the filtration systems that we have. And had an engineering firm uh, um, help us think about upgrading some of our filtration systems um, and uh, also to tell us which, uh, which um, spaces on our campus, classrooms and other spaces, uh, wouldn't meet the minimum criteria that we wanted to meet to be safe. And we've shut those down. Uh, or we've made them, we've t- taken them into a place where students can have a study space instead of being a classroom for 25 students, it's now a study space for four students or five students. Um, uh, and so we've repurposed all that. We have uh, plenty of classrooms for the first year seminars that will uh, uh, move inside when the weather does get colder. Everybody's got those assigned. Um, we have more classrooms than that, which, you know, if we needed them, we would use them. Um, but, uh, but that's how we've thought about space here. You know, the, the, our Buck Center for Fitness, which is our, you know, our gym, um, we're, we've just opened that, as I said, and and we've got a we did a space study there, and we're following the rules there, and so forth. So um, I hope that answered your question, Ken. Sure did. Uh, one last question. Um, everybody knows this pandemic has been a trial, and it seems like uh, compared to a lot of different 
other colleges and universities, you guys have, have fared quite well. But I want to know about you personally. How do you feel as a, as a college president and as a citizen? Uh, what do you think is the best thing to have come from this pandemic? And you, if you could point to one thing, what would that be? Mm. Well, with respect to Bowdoin, and it may be the best thing I've seen um, anywhere in, in, in the way I look at the world, um, the, the Bowdoin community, as you know, Ken, is very special. If people are in our community, our faculty, staff, students, alumni, parents, the folks in town, uh, are really devoted to the um, to the college in a way that I have rarely seen in my you know my life and the many kind of different professional experiences and personal experiences I've had. And uh, this uh, pandemic has been stressful. Uh, that, that, that's such a weak word for what we're all going through as right. beings here. But the stresses, the uncertainties, the concern, the the scariness of it all. And what's happened at Bowdoin is that the community has really rallied together beginning last spring and through the summer and into the fall to work with each other, to help each other, to reach out, to be there for one another. Um, and, you know, we, everyone goes through moments of ups and downs. And so when someone's up, they're helping someone who's down and vice versa. And uh, and really bending over backwards to to make an extra effort. And it's what we expect of the Bowdoin community. It's a major reason that I was so delighted to be able to come to this community six years ago or five and a half years ago and be a, be a part of it. Um, uh, but it's very real. It's really a remarkable thing to behold. EPAM Continuum integrates business, experience, and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we are very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Clayton Rose, we know you're busy. Thank you for giving us a peek into your world. Our producer, Ken Gordon, gracefully put on his interviewer hat today. Kip Lalas is our sound engineer, fixing the levels and all of that other audio stuff. And I'm your host, Kyle Wing, from the floor of my closet. Until next time, thank you.